Hello and welcome to Epicenter. My name is Camilla Foy, and recently I talked to Mariah Marion. She is a volunteer for Chelsea's Hope, a nonprofit organization dedicated to Lafora disease. Mariah has two siblings with Lafora disease, and she shared her sister's story and what it is like to be a sibling to those with Lafora. After hearing Mariah's story, as well as her sister's, I realized how important it is to raise awareness to Lafora. It is a rare form of progressive myoclonic epilepsy that is inherited. Because it is an orphan disease, government funding is not present to find a cure. The work that Chelsea's Hope does in connecting families and finding resources is truly amazing, and the word deserves to be spread. I will include the link to Chelsea's Hope's website and social media platforms in the description below. Now let's get into the episode. Hi, my name is Mariah Miriam. I am the sister of two Lafora disease patients, my older sister Anissa, who's 25, and my younger brother Tylan, who is going to be 17 at the end of this month. A little bit more about me, I graduated with my Bachelor's of Science from Arizona State University in Biomedical Sciences and minored in Integrative Health, and I got an Evolutionary Medicine Certificate. And I'm currently working in clinical research, and I'm an aspiring physician, and I'm a long-term volunteer for Chelsea's Hope. Now, what is Chelsea's Hope? Yeah, so Chelsea's Hope was founded by um, Linda Gerber in 2007 as kind of a platform to share her daughter Chelsea's story. And that was just for her friends and family. And she got connected to a lot of other Lafora disease families just in that process. And they decided to make it a nonprofit organization to advocate for these patients and to fight for cures. So the mission of Chelsea's Hope is to improve the lives of those affected by Lafora disease and to help accelerate um, the development of cures for that disease as well. Lafora disease research has little to no funding from the federal government because it's considered an orphan disease. So that's a disease that affects fewer than 200,000 people worldwide. I think about 200 people have Lafora disease around the world. So not many people have it. So there's little to no funding for cures. And we also have to compete with other orphan diseases. There's about 7,000 of them to get that funding. And so a lot of us work together to try and spread awareness about rare diseases so that we can. Um, fight for that funding for these kids. And so that's what Chelsea's Hope is all about, is providing resources to family, connecting families together, and connecting researchers together. Researchers together. And um, yeah, so we're really just trying to get that funding for a cure and spread awareness about this disease. Well, could you please explain what Lafora disease is? So Lafora disease is a severe and fatal form of inherited myoclonus epilepsy syndrome. Most cases of the disease are caused by mutations in two genes, EMP2A and EMP2B. These are both located on chromosome 6, and the gene EMP2A makes the protein leforin, and the gene EMP2B makes the protein called malin. And there's a few cases of this disease with an unidentified mutation uh, that they are still studying, but the majority of cases are with those two genes. And even within those uh, two genes, there's even different mutations, variations of those mutations within those genes. So each patient with Lafora disease has kind of a different prognosis based on the different mutations that they have. And some are the only one with the mutation that they have. And it's a worldwide disease. There's a higher incidence in the Middle East, Southern Europe, so Spain, France, and Italy. 
South Asia, so India and Pakistan, and also people of North African descent. It affects males and females equally. And these children, they grow up completely perceivably normal with no problems. And then they begin to suffer from seizures at about early adolescence. And all of a sudden they get diagnosed with epilepsy. The seizures get worse. They become resistant to medication. They experience a cognitive decline, behavioral changes, early onset dementia, um, and just difficulty doing the functions that they used to do. And so then they usually have to get a genetic testing done and also a skin biopsy to confirm that they have Lafora disease. And that is usually how patients get diagnosed. But because it's such a rare disease, there's usually a very big lag in diagnosis. And some symptoms of Lafora disease would be recurrent, increasingly intractable seizures, um, myoclonus seizures, so jerking, and absence seizures, so staring seizures, and also cognitive decline, difficulty controlling the muscles, also known as ataxia, difficulty walking, eating, um, speech difficulty, and childhood dementia as well. So yeah, that's a little bit about Lafora disease. And do you have any stories that you can share as a sibling to those with Lafora? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give a quick kind of overview of my sister's story. So growing up, she was completely perceivably normal. You know, her and I were only about a year and a half apart. And so we grew up super, super close. And by the time she turned about, I think she's about 14, 15 is when she had her first seizure. She went to... I think it was Morp, um, like the reverse prom dance at her high school, and there were flashing lights there, and she had her first seizure. Now, leading up to that, she had had some jerks, some myoclonus seizures, but my parents weren't sure what they were because they hadn't witnessed her do it. I had witnessed her do it a couple of times, and so it wasn't until she had that first seizure that she got diagnosed with epilepsy. And we knew that epilepsy was a treatable condition. A lot of people live with epilepsy and have mostly normal lives. And so um, we thought that she'd get on the right medication and she'd be good to go. But then the seizures stopped being predictable. She used to only have them in the morning when she'd get ready, um, within the first couple of hours of her waking up when she's concentrating really hard on something. And then it started to become something that was happening at any time of the day. It was very unpredictable. And then that would be in combination with a severe cognitive decline. She started doing worse in her classes and her personality started changing. She was just very confused all the time. And, you know, my mom really had to fight um, with the doctor sometimes to um, figure out what's going on with her because they kind of wrote it off as, oh, she's just not on the right medication. She might have depression. Let's get her on more medications. And there was very much something else going on. And so eventually they agreed to let my sister get genetic testing. And so um, they found out that she had Lafora disease. And as we were waiting for those results to come back, my sister's epileptologist gave my family a list of potential rare epilepsies that my sister could have. And I remember reading through them and um, my sister's symptoms matched perfectly with Lafora. And it was the, one of the most severe, if not the most severe of all the severe epilepsies that they gave us. And um, I remember telling my mom that, and, you know, we just, we knew that it was probably the case, but we hoped that that wasn't the case. And so my sister officially got diagnosed in about, I think it was the fall or winter time of 20, 2016. Yeah. Cause I was a junior in high school 
And so um, from that point on, my sister had a pretty rapid cognitive and physical decline. Um, she was wheelchair bound at that time and was having kind of nonstop seizures. And um, it was it was a very dark time for my family, for sure. And um, we got her on a new medication after my mom connected with Chelsea's Hope and learned from other families what medications kind of help their children and help them to have less severe symptoms and just prolong their life. And so I believe it was, um, oh goodness, what was it? I'm not sure, but it, it there was a different medication that we put my sister on that helped her to be able to walk again. And it helped someone with the same mutation as her in Spain to be able to walk again as well. And uh, that connection really helped my sister and she's still able to walk today and you know she spends her days just she loves um movie characters and so she loves like Aubrey Hepburn right now and Shirley Temple so she'll dress up as them she'll watch their videos all day kind of act them out um very theatrically sometimes she'll tap dance um or sing and uh, my mom takes her on walks she has a bunch of like therapists that come to her at the house like speech pathologists and um also physical therapists, occupational therapists. And so she has a lot of support and she's doing quite well considering that she's 25. That's the life expectancy of this disease. So she's doing quite well in that regard. Um, but definitely it's changed the trajectory of, you know, my entire family's lives. My mom had to give up her preschool business to be a full-time caregiver. Um, and, you know, it's inspired me to pursue medicine. So it's definitely, it's a very devastating disease. And then to find out that my brother also has it, um, we found that out my sophomore year of college. Um, no, actually it was my freshman year of college. And we tested both his genes and my genes. And I happened to not be a carrier and he happened to have the disease. And because we know that he has it, we've been able to put him on some preventative medications to prevent the seizures from getting out of control and to kind of help preserve him cognitively. And so far it's had a really great effect and he's about to be 17 and he hasn't had his first seizure yet. So we're very hopeful about that. So that's kind of a overview of Anissa's story and kind of what it's like being a family member of someone with Lafora disease. As I was saying, when she um, first started having seizures, she would very much only have seizures in the morning. And it was when she was doing her makeup and um, it was always when she was like leaning into the mirror, trying to do her eyeshadow. And I would always be kind of half awake whenever she'd wake up. She'd always wake up earlier than me because I'm kind of the person who would just throw on my clothes and go out the door. And so she would get up a little bit earlier and kind of make herself a little bit more presentable. And so I'd always hear her get up before me. And um, during that period of time, and honestly still now, like, I had to be in this state of like half asleep so I could still hear her because I was over on the same side of the house as her and my mom was on the other side of the house. So I always had to be listening for her to make sure that she was safe. And I knew if I heard like a loud bang that she had fallen and that she was having a seizure. Um, and then I'd get up and I'd run to go help her. And so for that reason, my mom and I always strongly advised her against showering in the morning because that was a big trigger for her was getting up in the morning and doing anything that required attention to detail and like adding water and slipperiness and the hardness of the shower. That was just a bad situation. But my sister's a very stubborn person. She always has been and she continues to be stubborn. But um, she decided one day to take a shower. And I remember hearing her turn on the shower and 
um, I was kind of half awake just listening because it always really stressed me out when she did that. And I heard a loud bang and like, it was like my worst fears kind of come to life. And I remember just screaming for my mom and I screamed so loud out of like dead, not dead sleep, but like I was pretty much half asleep and then to be completely up and screaming, um, I dislocated my jaw actually, uh, which did not help the situation at all. And so I'm, tr- I'm going over to where my sister is, my jaw's all out of place um, because it went from, you know, completely being rested to all the way open. And uh, my sister was having a seizure in the shower and thank God she didn't break anything. Um, and she didn't hit her head as far as we know. Um, she got bruised up a little bit, but um, it was just like our worst fears come to life. So my mom came running and I was trying to talk to her, but I could, I was barely understandable because of the way my jaw was dislocated at the time. And so um, I, you know, was trying to talk to my mom and we always knew what to do with her seizures and knew that like she'd be okay. But because she had fallen in the shower, we didn't know if she hit her head at that point. And so um, I had to call 911, um, which we didn't do after a certain period of time when we knew what her seizures looked like and that she'd be okay. But because she'd fallen in the shower, we wanted to make sure that she was okay. And so um, I remember trying to talk to the 911 operator and it was very difficult because my jaw was out of place and it was just a whole mess of a situation. And thankfully my sister, um, she went to the hospital, they checked her out and they made sure that she was okay. So that's one example of kind of what it's like to live with someone with a rare condition like this. Um, and that was kind of more like at the beginning. And um, the other story that I kind of want to tell is about a Halloween party that my sister and I went to when I was a sophomore in high school. So my sister and I always did things together. We were always um, just best friends. And anytime I was hanging out with my friends, I'd invite her to come and hang out with me because my life was just better when she was around. And so it was just a natural thing for me to do all my life. And so when there was a Halloween party coming up and my friend invited me, we had a whole group that we were going to go with and I invited my sister. And I remember kind of immediately regretting it afterwards because I knew that this was going to be um, an event where there would be flashing lights. And that was a major trigger for my sister at the beginning. It evolved to be uh, to the point where anything could cause a seizure for my sister, but flashing lights, concentrating, those were her main triggers at the beginning. And um, this is about like a year or two into her epilepsy diagnosis, but she had not been diagnosed with Lafora disease yet. And so, um, you know, I remember talking to my mom and being like, hey, I don't think this is safe for her. I invited her because I didn't want to not invite her. But now that I've thought about it, like, I just don't think this is safe. And I don't want to have to worry about, you know, if she's going to be okay. Like, I would just want to be able to go and have fun with my friends. But, you know, my mom was like, well, you know, I talked to her and we told, we discussed that like she would stay outside of the um, party and she knows that one of her friends is going. So they're just going to hang out outside the venue. So that way she doesn't have to miss out on anything. And I was like, okay, like as long as she does that, like I know that it's going to be fine. Um, And so the night came, my sister and I love Halloween. My family's a big Halloween family. And so we custom made our costumes like always. And um, we were very excited about it. She went as Harley Quinn. I think it went as like an alien or something like that. And so we went trick or treating with my friends and then we went to the party. And I remember walking into 
Um, it was at a barn at a popular farm in Arizona. And so um, I remember walking into the party and seeing that there was lights, lasers, strobe lights, the whole nine yards. And um, I, you know, immediately turned to my sister and was like, I don't think this is safe. And she agreed. And she went outside with her friend, like she'd said that she would, and they hung out there for a little bit. And so I got to go back in and kind of enjoy the party for a little bit and um, had a lot of fun with my friends. You know, I had some really good friends there with me and we were having a blast. And I remember after a while, my sister came back in and I was like, hey, like, what are you doing in here? I don't think this is safe. And she was like, well, my friend left and I'm not going to stay outside. And I was like, okay, well, this isn't safe. I don't think that like you want to have a seizure here. This would not be a safe situation. And my sister's stubborn, as I said. And so she was like, nope, I'm going to stay. And I was like, okay. So I think I might've texted my mom. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I remember just thinking, you know, I, you know, I'll just keep an eye on her and I'll stay close to her. And um, we danced all together for a couple of songs and it was kind of in the back of my head, but I remember kind of closing my eyes as the beat dropped to a song. And then next thing I know, my friend's kind of tapping my shoulder and I, I look over and my sister's on the floor having a seizure. And immediately, um, you know, I, I know what to do because I've seen it so many times. So, you know, I drop to my knees, I get her head on my knees and make sure that she's safe. And I turn her to her, turn her to her side and um, everyone surrounded us at the party. There's like 300 people there. And there's a lot of people looking at me, shouting things at me, but, you know, my friends knew that she had epilepsy and they were telling everybody and I was telling everybody, like, I know what to do. You know, uh, I told one of my friends to call 911 and the, another friend to call my mom. And um, someone told the DJ, the music stopped, the lights came on, they kicked everybody out. Like, it was a big thing that happened. And um, my sister kept having seizures. And so... Um, the paramedics did come and they were able to move her. They had to use a couch. At, um, there was a house behind the barn that was like the people who owned the farm and it was like a guest house. And so they used a couch as a stretcher to bring my sister from the barn to the house. And my mom met us there. And I remember just breaking down when I saw my mom and uh, my friends, I think, hugged me. And I, I felt a lot of things. And I think the most... Um, palpable thing was just feeling guilty that my sister um, had this seizure and um, she had hit her head really hard on the ground. Um, it was concrete in the barn and she got a skull fracture from that and she experienced a really sharp cognitive decline afterwards. And um, I think I really blamed myself for a long time for that. And I um I know now that it wasn't my fault, but I felt like people around me, like my family, blamed me as well. Um, but it's probably mostly just me feeling guilty. And so that's kind of a perfect example of what it's like to be the sibling of someone with a four disease, because um you want to have that normal relationship. You want to just be their sibling and do the things that siblings do, like go to a party together. Um, you also just want to be, you know, a kid yourself. You want to be able to have fun with your friends and not have this big um, event happen. And so it's very traumatic and for everyone involved. And um, definitely 
is something that still sticks with me to this day. And I think that's why it's so important for people to understand what Lafora disease is and just basic seizure safety as well, because you never know what people around you might have. And it's so important to keep people safe and respond to these things in time and try to prevent them from happening. So that's those stories kind of capture like my sister's story and then kind of what it was like for my family in the house and the roles that we kind of took and the adaptations that we made in order to um, adapt to this disease that my sister had even before we knew that she had it. Um, But it also just shows the impact of having something that serious looming over you as you're growing up. And I can't imagine what that felt like for my sister as the person who was um, actively digressing both cognitively and physically. And so, yeah, those are just some stories about the patient and family experience. For some reason, I get emotional when I tell people about it because I think seeing people's reactions to the story might make me cry too because it makes me realize, oh, (laughs) that was kind of a big thing that happened. Uh, And it kind of takes me back, of course, to that moment. And uh, just interesting how raw something can be after, God, how many years has it been? Um, That was 2017. Nope, that was not 2017. That was 2015. Wow. So almost, I think, eight years or something. I don't know. My math's not great, but it's amazing how Uh, certain memories and events can just stick with us, but it's a great example of if you ask anyone who has a patient with a four disease in their family, um, they probably have a similar story in some different aspect. Um, They can probably tell you the exact day they found out that they were diagnosed and all the emotions that they felt, as well as like, obviously the first seizure and then the worst seizures that they experienced that were the scariest for them. I think we tend to cling on to those memories of the things that freaked us out the most and were the most painful. So it's definitely, it's a very horrible disease. And I think it's so important for people to hear about people's experience with it because it's hard to connect with something unless you see how it affects another human being. You can read about it on paper and learn about these mutations that cause this disease, but it's a whole different thing entirely when you're living it and experiencing that decline in real time and those medical emergencies in real time as well. And I know you were mentioning just recently that you uh, were a part of the, or are a part of the sibling support group in Chelsea's Hope. So could you please um, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So Chelsea's Hope has a lot of really amazing resources for families and for patients. Um, They have a whole web page for if you're newly diagnosed, it's really easy to find. You can fill out a contact form if you want to. That just helps connect families and parents with each other. And they can help treatments that have worked for their kids to just help lessen their symptoms or improve their quality of life. Um, and drugs that have been repurposed in order to improve that quality of life and um, lessen their seizures, get them to start walking again like my sister did. And so that's an amazing thing that they do. They connect researchers together. They have these um, research roundtables that they have the scientists come together and discuss current research, and then they have someone there that kind of breaks it down for the parents as well. And um, for the sibling support group, 
um, I felt like it was really important to have that support for the siblings because I feel like you hear a lot about the patient and you hear a lot about the parents that are affected and um, you kind of forget about the siblings in the process. And I think that that was my personal experience and it was mostly my fault because I didn't want to add to my parents' problems or take away from my sister's medical needs or emotional needs. I just kind of wanted to disappear into the background um, so they could focus on what was more important. And so that's why it felt like it was important for me to start the sibling support group because um, I want to be able to create that resource that I didn't have. And then also I think that it's very healing to talk to others about your experience, share similar stories, and just unpack everything that you've been through and all those emotions and understand that that's normal. It's okay to go through all the stages of grief. Um, there's no there's no shame in anything that you're feeling because it's all very valid and very raw. So that's my goal with that group. And it essentially consists of, uh, we're going to have a multilingual platform for messaging. We're still picking one right now, but um, we're going to basically be able to have people from all over the world join this chat. And I'm going to post bi-weekly topics just about grief and their experiences. If they want to share, they can. If they just want to read, then they can. Um, and so that'll be the group chat part of it. And then we're going to have bi-monthly Zoom meetings that'll be led by me. And we're just kind of going to unpack um what was said in the group chats, as well as open the floor to anyone wanting to share how they're feeling or their experiences. And I also have a anticipatory grief journal that's been helpful for me in my own grief journey that um, I want to kind of help work through with other people. So that'll be the sibling support group. And then the other thing that I'm trying to develop with Chelsea's Hope that we're kind of in the production phase with will be the buddy program. So when I attended the Lafora Disease Science Symposium in 2022, last fall, I stayed up really late all night just looking through patient profiles. And, you know, they sounded so similar to my sister and what my family had experienced. And it just really made me very emotional. And that whole symposium was just a very raw experience for me because I'd stayed really busy during college to kind of avoid having to deal with all of this emotionally and to try and achieve that goal of also being a doctor. And um, so, you know, I finally had to face the music essentially of what the reality of what was happening and um, the reality of what's happened to patients before my sister. And so reading through their profiles, there was just this really profound sense of loneliness. And these kids, they lose their friends through this process because it's really hard to stay friends with someone when you no longer recognize them just as like a sister, you know, my sister is not the same person that she was um, throughout my entire life of who I've known her to be. Um, I've learned to love her where she is now, but it's a completely different uh, person than she used to be. And so um, I decided that I wanted to develop a program to give these patients that companionship. And that's kind of how the buddy program um, was born. And the whole idea is to have volunteers volunteer to connect with these patients and connect with them either over messaging or letters or Zoom, whatever that patient prefers. And it'll probably have to be with the assistance of their parents because these kids are usually um, unable to read and write after a certain point. So it'll just be adapted to that kid's needs and their abilities. And it'll just really provide that companionship for that patient to 
feel like they have someone other than just their family and their nurses. And it's also a great opportunity for volunteers to develop that relationship with those people and um, give them that companionship that they deserve. So yeah, those are just a couple of programs that Chelsea's Hope has just to support families and they're doing some really amazing work um, just in the rare disease space and of course for the Florida disease. So we're very grateful to them. It's amazing that Chelsea's Hope is able to connect people from all around the world just to find resources and different things that you might not get just by searching up online and like, oh, what can I find here? You can absolutely get connections from different people and even connect with anybody who has your experience and possibly even just make friends. Like I know you were talking about the buddy program. That would just be amazing for anyone who needs that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's so amazing, especially when you consider the fact that just five years ago, five to 10 years ago, you know, there was not a lot of hope for the four disease families. And so all they had was community and um, that's one of the big aspects of Chelsea's Hope is just that community and camaraderie with the parents, um, just supporting one another and giving each other updates on what's worked for them and how their child's doing. And um, it really makes all the difference in the world when you have that support. So what does the current research look like for a cure for Lafora? Yes. So... There's a few cures in production. Um, there's different kinds of cures. There's antisense, oligonucleotide, also known as ASO therapies that are currently being developed. There are AEF therapies, which is antibody enzyme fusion therapies that are being developed. Also small molecule therapies, um, which is basically it's a molecule that's designed to bind to a specific protein and prevent it from performing its function. So if, you know, too much leforin is being made, it can kind of prevent that. And um, there's also gene therapy treatments in production, but all of these things are at various different stages. And it's very much based on um, these researchers that are working for a cure and the funding that we're able to secure for them. Um, there's not a lot of uh, funding, as I said, for Lafora disease or just rare diseases in general. And we have a couple of these treatments that are ready to go into human clinical trials, but we don't have the funding um, or infrastructure to get them into those clinical trials. And, you know, as I've said about Lafora disease, it's time is of the essence with these kids. And there's you know, currently no cure and they just continue to get worse because it's a progressive neurological disorder. And so um, that's why, you know, funding is so important and um, supporting these researchers so that they can get these treatments into clinical trials. But um, I really admire everyone who's worked on the forward disease, all these researchers, Dr. Manassian, Dr. Matt Gentry, like it's just so amazing that these people have dedicated their entire lives to studying something so rare because there's not a lot of money in um, rare disease research and just focusing on trying to get something into um, patients when, you know, pharmaceutical companies have no incentive to fund that. And so it's it's really amazing that we have these people so passionately working towards a cure for Lafora disease and dedicating their entire careers towards it. So we're very grateful towards them. And there's a lot of hope for Lafora disease patients, but I think that 
the only thing we're lacking in is funding. And so um, while Chelsea's Hope continues to grow as an organization and works super hard to connect these researchers and raise money, um, raising awareness is the biggest thing for us. And so, yeah, so there's a lot of hope with research, but we just need more funding to get those human clinical trials so that these kids can get that important life-saving treatment that they need. Do you know which countries or even states in the U.S. are most concentrated on finding a cure for Lafora? Um, well, I know that two of the um, prominent researchers in Lafora disease, uh, one of them is Dr. Burge Manassian. I volunteer in his lab at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Texas. So he's been studying this disease for about 20 years, and he's working on gene therapy as well as pursuing other avenues to get this cure in kids. And so um, he's one of them in Texas. And then another predominant person in the U.S. who's studying this disease is also Dr. Matt Gentry. He's at University of Florida, I believe. I know he's at a Florida university, but I'm not exactly sure which one. Um, and he's also working on an experimental cure for Lafora disease. So um, there's also doctors in Spain that are working on this disease as well, and um, even in Italy. So it's um, it's really amazing that you know people are so impacted by this disease and so called to treat these patients that they choose to research it um, their whole lives. And so my last question for you is what can the viewers do to help? Absolutely. So what people can do is first and foremost, just check out the Chelsea's Hope website, follow them on social media. They have an Instagram page and TikTok page, I believe it's at Chelsea's Hope. And um, that would be the first thing I'd advise people to do because it'll help you stay up to date on any important updates, events, um, awareness, you know, events, and also will help them to, um, you know, be able to donate if they want to. And I really do encourage people to donate if you can, or try to contribute to the research in some other way, um, just by spreading awareness of the disease and encouraging people around you to donate. And we also really need volunteers at Chelsea's Hope. Um, because there's not a lot of funding for rare diseases, any money that is raised by Chelsea's Hope needs to go to that research and towards these cures. And so we really need a lot of um, volunteers in order to be able to continue to build the organization and grow it to continue raising awareness. So I believe there's a page on Chelsea's Hope with volunteer opportunities. There's a whole bunch of different positions. Um, for the Buddy program, we're gonna need quite a few volunteers. And so, um, that's definitely very important. If people are able to volunteer their time, then we definitely encourage that and would love that. And um, the last thing would just be to spread awareness about epilepsy in general. Um, first aid with epilepsy. If you see someone having a seizure, what do you do? Um, being knowledgeable about Lafora disease. I don't want anyone to think that, you know, their child who has epilepsy has this terrible rare condition, but I think it's important to be aware of what it is. So that way, if your child is showing symptoms, you can get that testing that you need to get that early diagnosis to prevent, um, you know, that harsher prognosis. Because, you know, with my brother, he's doing fairly well right now because we know what he has and we're able to get him on some preventative medications in order to preserve him at where he's at. So that's also something that's super, super important. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. It's amazing what you're doing, bring more attention to epilepsies and different kinds of epilepsies. And um, I just encourage you to keep on doing it, okay?